Okay, welcome everybody. As people are starting to join us, um, you will be aware that this morning we're joined by Eamon Boyle, and Eamon is the Chief Executive of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. Uh, prior to that, an illustrious career across various uh, Manchester local authorities, including a stint as the uh, Deputy Chief Executive of Manchester City Council, and of course, Chief Executive at Stockport. Good morning to you, Eamon. Morning, sir. How are we? I'm um, okay, thanks. And, and we were just uh, chatting offline there, Eamon, about our uh, experiences of going back into the respective cities of Liverpool and Manchester and uh, reflecting that you, when we went in, we were expecting and hoping that it'd give us a bit of a boost. And I think it had the same impact on both of us. We felt a little depressed afterwards because they're very different places at the moment, aren't they? Well, um, obviously, there'll be a bit of a change this week since Monday. Though, of course, you know, if you were a retailer, you must have thought that God doesn't love retail, given the weather that he sent this week. Um, but hopefully there's a bit more life on the streets. But certainly a number of weeks ago when I went in, uh, as I said to you before, you knew everything was closed. So what was, the, what was there to be surprised about? When you see just the concentration of, uh, of, of inactivity, if you like, uh, there was one heroic busker on Market Street who he thought he was playing to. I've got no idea, um, but uh, he was carrying on regardless. So I went and gave him a fiver just for the for the good of his, his, his sanity. But um, other than that, absolutely dead. And I, I came away feeling thoroughly deflated. But uh, hopefully, Touchwood, we're seeing a bit of a, a, a revival of life uh, this week, and um, hopefully more in the near future. Mm. Uh, and as we start to look to that future, Eamon, I know that you uh, and your colleagues at the Combined Authority have been busy trying to put together a, a recovery plan. Uh, and what we do know of Manchester uh, through its recent history, that it's a very resilient place. Um, it tends to have uh, ideas and innovations that are a little bit ahead of the curve uh, in terms of other places. So it'd just be interesting to know how you see us coming out of this uh, as a city region? What are the key elements uh, of that recovery plan that you're currently compiling? Well, uh, I think one key message is that, um, as um, I keep reminding myself, the one thing I don't need in life is another strategy. Yeah, uh, I've got plenty of them. I've got you know bookshelves full of them. Um, and we think the Greater Manchester strategy and the local industrial strategy that we agreed and, and published last year with government actually are still the right things, the, the relevant things, set the right uh, outcomes, set the right ambition in respect of the city region. The real trick then is to understand, so what do we need to do differently now in order to continue to, to move towards delivering some of those, those objectives, whether that's in terms of individual educational attainment for a young person or how we support our leading edge sectors in advanced materials and health innovation and, uh, uh, and digital technology and, and such like. So we're trying to work through what um, the immediate future looks like, because one of the most difficult periods of time is the one that we're facing right now. It's the move out of lockdown, the economic shock that's not, not going to create, it already has created. Um, uh, and that, that, will, that will continue. And then we need to move into a period where we'll have to accommodate the virus. And we're just calling it a period of living with COVID, to be perfectly honest, which we think is probably going to be about 12 months. 
um, while you know we're adapting, while we're dealing with the implications of whatever social distancing rules happen to apply that given week. Um, watch this space as the Prime Minister's come out and wants to, to tell us. Okay, very, very precise guidance there, Bia. Um, but then also looking at how we can work with, uh, with the LEP and with business organisations, with our, our individual businesses, our institutions, the universities, etc. Uh, pretty much as we have done in the past, but recognising that all of them are starting from a, a very, very different position. Uh, and it will take significant amounts of time to, to recover some of those positions. But the way in which we're approaching it in our dialogue with government is um, pretty much as we have always done. We're, we are going to be making the case for more investment from the public purse. Of course we are. Um, but it's really, really important as well that we're creative about how we persuade government to give us the flexibility to deploy the resources that are already in the system better in the light of the situations that we now face. Just a simple example, um, work to support um, individuals trying to get back into the labour market, work to try and support businesses whose business models have been severely disrupted. We need to be able to flex those locally to make certain that the offer that we're making to people is pertinent and relevant to the jobs market and the employment market and the business environment into which the city region is emerging. And that'll be different in Manchester to Liverpool. It'll be very different from in Manchester and Liverpool to London. And therefore we've got to have the flexibility to be able to use programmes that are already out there with working with the likes of DWP and, and, and the Department for Education, but doing things differently to enable us to actually address the real um, uh, barriers to people moving into what will be a very different labour market. We know that uh, in, uh, opportunities will arise, but they may be very, very different from the ones that people have been used to and the occupations that people have been used to. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot, a lot for us to, to do. And one thing I would say that is important, and, and that the mayor is very um, focused on this, is while the virus itself has had a disproportionate impact on elderly people, the, the thing that's most likely to influence um, morbidity is age. Some of the economic impacts of the crisis actually will impact on our younger people, yeah. people coming out of school, people going into business. A lot of the businesses that failed to get support because they were too newly established, uh, young, SM, young new SMEs established by young people coming out of college or university or school. And so there's an awful lot of work for us to do to try and make sure that we're putting in place some safety nets for those young people to enable them to get back into, into the labour market and get back in quickly. Because, you know, don't get too melodramatic over it, but, you know, people are starting to talk about a lost generation as a result of all this. And I think that's overstating it, to be honest. But there's a big job of work for us to do to make certain that our younger people can, can reach their attainment and realise that they're uh, and when you look at the situation that we're facing now, Eamon, of course, we've been through uh, some economic shocks uh, over the decades, the 90s, uh, and of course, the financial crash of 2008. Um, but you and I are, are old enough to remember the 80s, and it feels a bit more like the 80s to me. And I don't think we reacted at that time, in that particular decade, effectively enough to stop a lost generation from emerging. And you know, I will still argue um, that we see some of the uh, damage that was done during that period today. So uh, some of the points that you've raised there, particularly around young people, do chime. Uh, and equally, uh, I think you've made a great point. 
it's not always about new money it's about using existing money more effectively and we can do that far better at that local level can't we i believe so I mean, one of the things that um, the, the, the pandemic has, has demonstrated it's something we already knew is that the one thing you can't do is deliver genuine local impact from a national level yes all you need to do is look at the work that was done to to, to provide support to those known as the shielded cohort those particularly vulnerable people um and it was a little bit like sort of um uh, trying to, to to bomb a community from a mile up in the air uh, there was no precision about where things were going a lot of people got missed out local authorities were working from day one to make sure that genuinely vulnerable people were being picked up and recognized that weren't being recognized nationally not to say that people at the national level were not doing things in very very good faith they were doing their level best but it's just the wrong way to organize them. Um, and so in, the more that we've managed to exert local uh, control and influence over the delivery of those sorts of services at a very very mundane level the better it's been the more sustainable uh, the situation has been for our citizens and more people are getting fed um, than that was the case and so and we had to intervene from a local level to persuade government to change things like the access to business grants scheme so as you're probably aware at the start of that if you ran a business out of a shared premise and didn't have a direct business rate bill to pay then you were just automatically excluded from any assistance at all which is madness you think about sort of awful lot of our you know emergent creative businesses in shared spaces in in, in our cities I and mean, it's you know, it was just a huge huge gap Thankfully, in fairness to the government, they listened. It took a while, but they listened. And we got to a place where we could actually start to provide some support to those people. But that was local influencing up. And I just think that's, you know, it's been a real illustration of um, you know, the power of trying to integrate um, locally. Because if you're trying to address things like schools and kids in schools and transporting kids to schools and then dealing with vulnerable elderly and then dealing with the medical emergency and then dealing with people in care homes and all the rest of it you can deal with it on a segmented silo basis which is what government does because that's how it's organized or you can deal with it in a place and then you can tie things together you can link things together and that's what you know good local intervention can do so sorry on a bit of a rant about local control at the moment no, I, th I think it's really important and it's one of the arguments that, that we've certainly been putting forward in the various discussions that we're having. Uh, and of course, Greater Manchester is in the unique position in that during the discussions for the original Devo Mag deal, you guys actually took what I thought at the time was a very brave decision, Eamon, of responsibility for health and social care. And I just wonder what the experience of that has been like in comparison to other places, if you know what the comparison is like. Uh, but just on a day-to-day -day, uh, operational basis, whether you've felt that that's made a real difference, a positive difference uh, to you guys in Greater Manchester. Whenever you say brave, I'm always reminded of that wonderful scene from Yes Minister years ago. Yeah, that would be a brave thing to do. Minister. What? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think it was brave. It was bold. And a lot of people um, across the country, my colleagues, still look at us and think, you know, why on earth did you do that? Our view was, if, you know, if you're looking at indicators of deprivation and inequality, um, the fact that people are dying 13 years earlier, in one district having been born on the same day as somebody else in a, a, a different district just two postcodes away then you know you've got to deal with health inequality you can't do anything else 
in terms of where it's got us to during the pandemic, I think it's stood us in really, really good stead, to be honest, because what we've managed to do is really manage and maintain an integrated health and care system, I think probably better than almost anywhere else. And I'm not, I'm not making false claims, but just to give you a straightforward example, very early on in the, the crisis, it became clear, and I think, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here, that government were prioritising hospitals for their supply of protective equipment, PPE, uh, and the pandemic stopped. Understandable that that's the decision that they took, but that meant that at one stage we were very close to losing a significant proportion of our social care homes because people could not operate them safely. So we went out into the marketplace as a partnership and we were operating globally to buy in our own PPE in order to build up a stock. And that then gave us the confidence to have a mutual aid system in place. So hospitals were giving up precious protective equipment to service and support other parts of the economy, knowing that they would get it back, that we would recycle that, and that partnership would give them the strength and integrity to do that. And that was absolutely critical to us in being able to maintain the quality of care and the safety of care in, in a lot of our care settings. Uh, and we wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't had the integration. Uh, just, uh, just one other example. Um, you know, as soon as I start talking about technology, I start speaking rubbish because I don't know what the hell I'm on about. But <laughs> we've been arguing for donkey's years, and I think most places have been as well, that it would be really, really sensible to do what most people assume we already do, which is have a single digital record that your doctor, your consultant, your care worker can access that will tell you what they need to know about your medical history and condition. It didn't exist. Yeah. We've been arguing about it for years, trying to inch it forward, inch it forward, inch it forward. We did it within six weeks of the pandemic strike. Wow. Now we've got it now. It's there and it's working and it's the backbone of an integrated health and care system. Yeah. And I'm immensely proud of that. You know, that's, that's something that we, we built the platform to do. This just gave us the impetus to say, you can't not do this now. And so that was great. I'm really proud of that. Yeah, no, that is brilliant. And, it, you know, people listening into this aim will think, well, that's just common sense. But of course, as you say, those arguments have been going on for donkey's years. As to have the discussions, debates around training skills and education. And again, I know this is an area that you're passionate about. Uh, and if we're not going to be able to press a reset button uh, on that whole gamut of um, activity that's going to be required now, then we're never going to be able to. Uh, again, it's vitally important that we have those powers, those responsibilities and some resources devolved so that we can start to deliver what we need at the local and regional level. Uh, and again, I know that, that you share my frustration that it's often been one size fits all in terms of our educational approach. Um, so anything within um, the conversations you have, and I'm sure there are, in terms of how we start to reconfigure uh, the training offer that we have for people? Yeah, it's, it's front and centre of um, the case that we're putting to government. In fact, we're making a submission to government this week, probably, probably today, in fact, um, in advance of um, the um, so-called fiscal event, the, the thing that's not a budget or a spending review, but is going to happen next month. We're not quite sure what it is, but... Um, uh, and there are a number of elements in there. There are schemes that we think we could get moving quickly in order to kickstart the construction industry. 
There are flexibilities around the way in which we can deploy funding that I referred to earlier on. But there are also some early um, labor markets, to use the term loosely, interventions um, that we want to promote, particularly around skills and, and, and training, to try and make certain that, uh, that uh, we're getting as a, the relevant um, input in to support people moving into, into a new economy. And, and we want to go beyond that, and we are pushing to go beyond that to try and make certain that you know, we've got the ability locally to deliver on the ambition to create parity of esteem between vocational and academic education. And we know that you know, we've gone down a, a narrow academic route nationally where everyone is funneled towards university. If you don't go to university, it's sort of failure, even though being at university is actually the wrong outcome for an awful lot of our young people. Um, and then we, we've just lost sight on the, the, you know, the quality of vocational training. And we've seen that in the way in which the apprentice uh, program has started and blossomed and stuttered and stopped. And we need to really, really build on, 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 that, on that vocational work-related um, education and training offer to make certain that it's relevant to people, it's got quality, and it's delivering the outcomes that both uh, people seeking employment and, and looking to, to develop their careers and the employers themselves are looking for. And again, some of that you can do nationally, um, but the evidence has been that it just isn't happening in that way. And I think we still have that one-size-fits-all approach towards curriculum design that we, we think is, is fundamentally wrong. And you know, Andy Byrne is making these points, Steve Rotherham is making these points, and Jarvis from Sheffield is making these points, Andy Street, in, in fairness to him, in Birmingham, is making exactly the same point. And so I'm hopeful that, that the mayor's working in concert um, you know, will be able to exert influence over government that up to now we might have struggled a bit with on the, those fronts. Because, you know, I've said in jest before that there, there are parts of certain departments, including education, where I think they, they missed the class where they were the, the meaning of the word devolution was taught. Um, so you know, it, it's been a bit of an uphill battle, shall we say, but I, you know, I'm hopeful that we're getting into a better place. Yeah. Uh, and you've mentioned young people that obviously will be hugely impacted uh, through this crisis, uh, Eamon, but equally we're aware of the fact that there's going to be people who uh, are older. Um, Cheeky. Who've been, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who've been in, in secure, or what they would have thought was secure employment, who are now going to be finding themselves uh, made redundant. Um, and so we've got to be mindful that it can't just be about catering for under 25s. It's got to be uh, this old phrase again of lifelong learning, which drives me mad because I often look out there and think, well, you know, we're basically asking um, older people to either get with our program, which is going into an FE establishment or, uh, you know, an educational institution uh, or basically not do much else. I think one of the things that we have found very positive during the last 11, 12 weeks or so is the fact that we can do this sort of stuff. Uh, and, you know, I'm aware of a number of people who've taken to doing um, modules of online training. So, so again, we can perhaps reconfigure how we look at delivering really good quality training programmes to reskill people who, as I say, sadly will be coming out of work over the next few months. I think that's a really important point. I mean, you often hear um, people saying, oh, young people entering the job market now, you know, they won't have a job for life. They might have 15 different jobs. Well, it's not just young people coming into the labour market who might be facing that challenge. It's people who are in their mid-30s who are facing that challenge. 
uh, as we know, that's not just about the gig economy and the zero hours economy, it's just about the flexibility. And the fact that, you know, we know that an awful lot of the jobs that will exist in five years' time don't exist now because of the speed at which, you know, digital technology and such like is moving ahead. So we've got to be able to, to, to reskill. We've got to, though, recognize the fact that there are still issues around digital exclusion. Uh, and that's not just, you know, the, the, the archetypal thing that you know, anyone over 50 doesn't know how to turn the computer on, which yeah. you know, most you, my, my son still believe is true. Yeah. Um, but it is about the fact that we've got significant numbers of families in, you know, cities like Salford that have got no access to, to, to internet, no access to equipment. So we need to start at the very bottom and make sure that we're actually equipping people with digital skills, digital literacy. And so some of the work that we're doing with the likes of Barclays and others to promote digital engagement, digital literacy, digital, digital confidence is really, really important because you're absolutely right. It then creates different opportunities for people to access learning in ways that they can manage and they can, they can accommodate uh, that they have the appetite for, but otherwise that wouldn't happen. And we just need to make certain that we've got the quality of, of output. There's, there's an awful lot of stuff on the, the internet, uh, some of which is absolutely brilliant, top-class stuff, some of which is, is less great. Uh, so how do we help people to, 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 to navigate that with confidence, not only using the technology, but able to understand the, the quality of content as well. So I think that's there's a, a lot for us to do in that regard. I feel as though I'm going to tempt fate with my next point, but um, when you talk about technology uh, and people being able to utilise that, the other thing, of course, that's hugely important is the infrastructure. Uh, and Greater Manchester is a big old place, uh, and I'm sure that you know that connectivity quality is different in places uh, that are perhaps further out from city centres uh, and town centres. And so uh, again. I've always felt that we've been playing catch up with investments. Yeah. And of course, yeah. this whole nonsensical debate around 5G hasn't helped with people going around blowing up bloody substations and so on. Um, but that again, Eamon, I would suggest is something that we really do need as a country to get our act together on now. Yeah, we do. I mean, we need to up our ambition as well. You know, at the moment, you know, we've got a stated national ambition of in five years' time being sort of half as good as Singapore was a decade ago. Well, hang on a minute. On, on what planet does that make sense? So I think you're absolutely right. And one of our top-line projects that we've, you know, we've shovel-ready projects that we're promoted to government is a significant extension of our full fibre programme uh, that we've currently got underway um, across, across GM. Um, and uh, which we believe we, we can extend to try and give you know, m much greater coverage, much greater access to, to, to full fibre gigabit um, connectivity right the way across the city region. But we're having to stitch it together through all sorts of different routes. I mean, we had a programme which we completed about two years ago to put um, uh, uh, digital broadband into a number of our um, uh, communities. We had to use the European Union rural programme to do it. So it came as a bit of a shock to people in Rochdale to find out they were in rural area, but you know, hey, we, we, we could get away with it, so we bloody well did. Um, and but we're now embarking on, on another program, and we believe with relatively modest investment in the grand scheme of things that we could go much further, much faster. And you know, unless we do, we are our individuals and our businesses are going to be profoundly handicapped in terms of their ability to compete. 
in an increasingly internationally competitive marketplace for, for all sorts of skills, services, products. Yeah. So and we are working hard on that. Um, but um, to Richard Lee, we still describe it as snail mail rather than the, his, his ambition for you know, uh, 10 gigabit um, uh, connectivity. But um, it's, 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 it's a step in the right direction. But we need, we need to up our ambition nationally and locally. We need to up our ambition around all of this. Yeah. And as I say, these are some of the things hopefully uh, the government will be listening a bit more intently to, given the experience we, we've had over the last few months. And, and of course, connectivity, Eamon, has been something that's dominated uh, the debate uh, around devolved governments over the past three years. You know, it's almost felt at times that the whole of the Northern Powerhouse agenda was taken up by transport. Now, I know that's not been the case, but nonetheless, it has been a preeminent uh, topic of, uh, of discussion. And of course, we are seeking some big numbers in terms of investments to improve our uh, transport infrastructure. Uh, I want to talk about this in two phases, though. I want to look at the, uh, the, the regional and therefore national connectivity that we hope will come from Northern Powerhouse Rail and HS2. And we'll come to that in a moment. Um, but equally, uh, people are now starting to rethink how we get about cities and we mobilise our communities a bit more uh, environmentally, I suppose, friendly, friendlier uh, than we have in the past. Um, now, I know, again, Chris Bourbon's done an awful lot of work in Greater Manchester prior uh, to, to the virus in terms of cycling being a big thing and Andy Burnham's a big promoter of it. Um, what are we seeing coming out of policy at this moment in time, Eamon, that may be a bit different as we reflect on the experiences of the last three months? Well, as you said, we've been putting um, a lot, uh, in relative terms, a lot into what we call our active travel agenda, fundamentally supporting cycling and walking. And you, you, you referenced the work that, uh, that Chris, Chris Boardman has, has been leading on, which has not only been about uh, delivering programmes, but also about determining standards to make certain that segregation of spaces and pedestrian and cycling safety and you know, allocation of road space is thought through in a thorough way. And that we're avoiding things like a totally safe cycle lane that then arrives at a totally lethal roundabout because we haven't thought about how people can get across it in, 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 in the right way. Um, so that work's going on and, and, and continuing. And you know, we, we're still we're committing two thirds of our available tra capital transport res resources on um, uh, on cycling and walking. Remainders going on extension of the the tram fleet on Metrolink. Um, but over the last um, couple of months, the, the, the move has been very much towards how can we put in place arrangements very quickly um, that can enable people to to, to have greater confidence in moving around uh, either through, through walking or, or cycling. Um, and until it started raining again, we'd seen a significant increase in the number of people cycling. I have to say that increase has disappeared since the, <laughs> the heavens opened, um, but, it, but it will come back. And so we've got to bid into the government at the moment for about 22 million quid um, to put in temporary um, uh, uh, measure, measures to promote um, cycle lanes. So, my advice to anybody listening is if you're looking to uh, invest in anything, find a manufacturer of traffic cones, um, because there's going to be an awful lot of demand for them, uh, not only from Highways England, but from everybody else to try and put in place temporary cycle lanes in the, in the, the, the very near future. And each of the 10 districts have got plans um, that we're trying to join up um, to put in place um, 
the commuter uh, pathways, but also to try and improve the ability of people to do last mile um, by cycling and walking. And uh, but I think, I'm not entirely certain, but I think we're about to start a trial of e-scooters as soon as they're legal um, okay. to uh, see if they can help um, to, uh, to move us forward, as well as uh, launching a tender for the first phase of a, a large-scale bike hire scheme um, that will start in Manchester, Salford, Trafford, and then extend out across the ten, provided we can uh, uh, make it commercially viable uh, to do that. So a lot of ambition uh, around... Uh, around all that. But I would say it is as much about, and, uh, and again, some politicians here would say this if I didn't, it's not just about cycling, because a lot, a lot of people cycle. It's still a minority, but a lot. Everybody walks, or everybody needs to use the, 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 the footpath, uh, whether walking or, or, or with assistance. Um, and so that's a really uh, fundamental um, uh, focus for us. Um, uh, to to to, to re remain uh, very clear about. Okay. Uh, just uh, before we talk a little bit more about uh, cycling and and local mobility and getting around, and and again, I thought that was a great point you made there, Eamon. You know, in the middle of uh, the heat wave and when everyone's sort of uh, having a working from home and and furloughed, uh, then it's easy to imagine cities full of cyclists. But on a wet and windy February. Wednesday night I'm not sure it's going to be as as an attractive proposition um, but there's a, a point that's just been made from Sean Hines there from uh, Manchester Central he's asking whether we could um, legalize e-scooters at a regional level or that's national legislation that's uh, that, that requires national legislation um, certainly we can we can put in place local pilots to promote them uh, and promote their use um, but it does require uh, national legislation to, to 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 be altered to make them uh, be deemed as roadworthy. Yeah, right, cool. Uh, and just uh, final point on the on the local transport situation. Had Howard on a few a couple of weeks ago, I think it was now, uh, and he was asked what his biggest regret was, uh, and he said the congestion charging referendum. Uh, <laughs> and in typical Howard fashion, he said, "I wish we wouldn't have bloody asked." I wish we'd have just done it. Um, well, yeah, but that's interesting. I mean, why did why did we ask? Of course, because we're transparent and inclusive and all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, but we asked because we had to. Okay. Uh, we had to be able to demonstrate public support. Now, did the mayor of London have to do the same thing when he introduced the congestion charge in London? Um, no, he didn't, because the legislative framework was different. Uh, and if you go into a, a, a ballot and say to people, would you care to pay a substantial amount of money for something that you've always been to be free before? <laughs> Fairly predictable what the outcome is that you're going to get. And that's not a criticism of Howard or, or Richard or anybody else. I mean, it's just uh, something that we, we have to do. And at the end of the day, you know, we, we are suffering from the, the lack of the revenue that would have provided us in order to invest in our infrastructure. That's just the reality of where we are. But we are where we are, um, and so uh, I don't think we're going to be reopening that debate anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> no. Let me move on then to those big infrastructure projects that I know have exercised uh, your mind for, for some time and, and many others. Um, so are you hearing anything coming from um, the uh, halls of Westminster that would make you concerned about 
the future of HS2 or Northern Power Rail. Um, the indications that I've heard are that actually the government will be looking for big uh, infrastructure investments. So, so I'm comforted on that level. Equally, I'm aware that they've just splurged an awful lot of cash that they weren't anticipating they'd have to spend. Uh, and therefore, you do always look at these things with some scepticism. Uh, what's your gut feeling, Eamon? Do you think those projects will get the green light? I think they will. I think the, the, you know, the, there's been a very clear and strong commitment from the Prime Minister down um, around those projects. I mean, you, you may recall just after he was elected leader, he came to Manchester and gave a speech at the Museum of Science and Industry. I don't know if you were there, Frank, at the, the speech, but you know, there he restated that, that level of commitment. Um, and um, so, you know, while Am I confident that we will achieve the optimum in terms of the integration of HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail and the vision of High Speed North in an ideal way? That's going to be continuing work, but I think the commitment to make the investment is is genuinely there. Um, but, you know, the battle will be to make certain that we're getting the best possible outcome for whatever the investment is that's available, because. Will be, even if there are billions, which there will need to be on the table, you know, will there be an adequate number of billions? Well, we can argue about that, but there's a lot uh, for us to, to work out. But I think the basic commitment towards moving those projects forward hasn't changed. Um, and as you rightly say, the government will be looking for large-scale investable projects uh, that can demonstrate confidence and, and can help build a more resilient infrastructure for the future. Um, and you know, we we've all rehearsed the the arguments behind the east-west connection as well as the capacity connection on the west coast uh, side and so i won't go into those but i think i think that a commitment is is there more interestingly i think you know we're now waiting to hear from government about how they view the connection between that intercity infrastructure and how that then links into intra-city movement and so we've had the Williams review of rail, waiting for the outcome of that. Uh, that's obviously being delayed as a result of everything being delayed. Um, and uh, that's going to be important for us to understand how we can effectively integrate bus, tram, train, uh, alongside any active travel measures that we're, that we're trying to put in place. And start to move towards giving people what everyone legitimately aspires to, which is a proper integrated and affordable network to enable people to move around. Uh, and we're still a long way from that, if truth be told. Yeah. Now, Eamon, we can look right across uh, the business community and every single sector, of course, has taken a hit. Um, but one of the great things that has happened in uh, the core cities, Manchester uh, being no exception during the past 10, 15 years, is uh, the growth, uh, the explosion almost of great facilities in terms of eateries, you know, bars, um, new hotels have sprung up. And that cultural offer that we have as cities is so important to life now. And of course, uh, jobs as well, the, the number of jobs and the wealth that is generated through the hospitality and visitor economy it is significant. And of course, as we begin to come out of this lockdown, it seems quite clear to me that the one sector that has been, uh, and I will use the phrase let down, has been that sector because of the lack of consistency and clarity. We were expecting an announcement 
um, towards the end of last week, I think it was, in terms of how we would start to get those places back up and running at the 4th of July. That guidance still hasn't been forthcoming. What conversations are taking place between uh, combined authorities, mayors uh, and ministers to see what we can do to support that sector, which at the moment, I have to say, uh, is feeling somewhat abandoned? Um, there, there is dialogue happening. Um, we've been in conversation with government departments through the communities and local government departments. We're reaching into Treasury and uh, DEFRA and, and uh, DCMS and others um, over this for a number of well, for, for months now um, and trying to make some fairly um, simple points that uh, hopefully people would agree with. I mean, one is we need to unlock hospitality and, and, and cultural activity in its broadest sense on a place basis. There was once, uh, there's some mention from uh, government at one stage of saying, well, we could allow small guest houses to open, but not hotels. And we could allow maybe some restaurants to open, but not bars. And they said, for God's sake, you know, do you want everyone to go bankrupt? You know, if this is just, we've got to be able to let the ecosystem that's grown come back and, be, and behave in, in, in that way. And one of the points that you know we've been making, and it's a difficult one because the, the mayors, uh, and no exception, very, very keen to make certain that we keep safety at the heart of how we recover, but also making the point very consistently that if we retain a two meter social distancing requirement and expect bars and restaurants to reopen, then you know, we, or, or, or music venues to reopen, then you know, we are on a hiding to absolutely nothing. And so, and the, so the point that we're making is there comes a point where the medical science says you can go so far, but then fundamentally there's a political choice to make about how much further you then go in order to make certain that things things can survive. Um, so, but it is a difficult one. I mean, if you, I hope he doesn't mind me saying it, but when asked the direct question as to what would have helped him the most to deal with the illegal raves that happened in Manchester last weekend. Uh, the chief constable said, open all the pubs and clubs and get the kids back in school. Um, and I thought, well, okay, yeah, that sort of just about sums it up, really. Um, um, but, uh, it, I, you know, I rec really re we do recognise um, the need for, for, for us to have a coherent approach. And we are working, for example, I mean, uh, um, one of my um, roles is as a, um, a trustee of the Halle Orchestra. Uh, and I know they're working with the Royal Liverpool and with a number of other uh, cultural organisations right the way across the north to try and make certain there's a very clear voice into the Arts Council about support that a lot of those, not, not just classical uh, music, but the, the broader cultural scene would require. And trying to make certain that the north has got a coherent voice that can at least stand alongside the, the voice of London in terms of the, 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 the cultural institutions there. So we're trying to find a way of, uh, uh, of moving forward as quickly as we can. And a number of authorities in GM, I'm sure exactly with this, the same will be true of, uh, of Merseyside and places, looking to implement very quickly any new changes that government regulation allows around the opening up of space outside bars to enable them to, to trade uh, more, more at greater volume more quickly. Um, so, you know, we'll be looking to, to increase pedestrianisation in places, we'll be looking to increase the ability for people to put tables outside, if that's what they need to do in order to be able to trade effectively. 
but you're right. I mean, both of my sons work in the hospitality business. They both work in, in, in bars in Manchester uh, and they're both furloughed. Um, but, you know, they're very conscious of the fact and their business owners are very conscious of the fact that, you know, they, they will need a lot of support for quite a long time if we're not going to see some pretty catastrophic outcomes in terms of loss of employment in those sectors, which are hugely important to, to the life and vibrancy of all of our cities. Eamon, you've talked a little about, you know, the collaboration across the north there. You've just mentioned uh, the orchestras from uh, Liverpool and Manchester. And of course, the Northern Powerhouse as an entity and a brand has um, been part of a narrative for three or four years now. And I think, again, uh, I would say that outside of transport, it's somewhat difficult uh, for people to see what, if any, difference that Northern Powerhouse piece is making. Um, so... Given the fact that we're now on the verge of finally having a West Yorkshire combined authority, so uh, that's going to come into play. Then you've got the Sheffield uh, piece as well. Do you think that we may now be able to get to a position where we have a more formal Northern Powerhouse uh, partnership moving forward, where people do start to put pressure on government? Uh, and importantly, Eamon, I think, to make government see the North as part of the solution rather than a problem because again i think often in the past it's felt as though we're almost going with a begging bowl and we're using you know statistics about deprivation and unemployment rates when actually we've got so much to offer that that investment should be seen by the government as a real positive thing not you know a handout but as in the old uh, soundbite days of, of alistair campbell and blair a hand up that's what we need we need to be contributing what we can to this economic recovery that's required for the country. Well, I think I would agree, the, you know, have we achieved as much as we might have hoped through um, the collaboration through Northern Powerhouse, the Northern Powerhouse 11, the 11 LEPs working together, um, etc. Well, maybe not. Um, I think there is, we need to travel with a degree of care when we talk about a more formalised arrangement. What does that actually mean? Because what I don't want to do is to move back to a position like we had with the regional development agencies, who were effectively directly controlled by government, uh, with a little bit of local influence, shall we say, but more directly controlled by, by government um, uh, in, in a way that one or two of the other growth engines are and the Northern Powerhouse isn't. So I do think we need to you know, tread with a degree of care and make sure that whatever we create as we develop the Northern Powerhouse concept does exactly what you said, which is create that platform, that voice for the North that can articulate the, the offer, not the ask, but the offer that the, the North, North, North can make. And I think um, there's, there's a lot of support for, for moving ahead on, on that basis. And certainly the, the actions of the, the Mayor of Greater Manchester and the other mayors in creating the Convention of the North, uh, which is due to happen in Liverpool, but is not going to happen now, but will happen next year, uh, is to try and create that sort of political forum where there can be a debate over the, 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 the real issues driving off. But we do need then a body that can take responsibility for the development of a framework for, for, for intervention in the North. What I think we need to be clear about is that responsibility for doing stuff needs to rest with Steve Rotherham's, the Andy Burnham's, the Dan Jarvis's of this world and, and the local authorities within their, uh, their, their mayoralties. What I don't want is another big delivery body at the North, but what I do want is something that can bring public and private sector together 
to articulate that, that offer that we can make around energy, around advanced technologies, around advanced manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, um, uh, it, it is important and it is urgent and work is on the way to try and make sure that whatever we get uh, fits the, uh, the, 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 um, the aspiration that you described. Uh, we've got a couple of questions coming in from the panel, which I'll take in a second. Um, final couple of points from, from me, Eamon. Um, we, we talked about, you know, the failure and lack of clarity in terms of getting the hospitality sector back up and running. Um, football returned to uh, to our screens at least last night. I don't know if you managed to catch any of it. I, I felt as though it was like watching paint dry. I don't know what you thought, if you'd managed to catch either of the games last night. I had the good fortune of watching City win, which as a United fan is not my favourite subject to uh, but uh, I mean, it, it, it's odd, isn't it? I don't know whether you've watched any of the other stuff, the Bundesliga and all the rest of it that's been on. Yeah. And you suddenly realise, actually, you know, I've, I've been desperate for football to come back. And then it's back and you're thinking, well, I didn't miss it if this is what it's like. <laughs> but, you know, it, it'd be fun. But the, the idea, you know, the, the weekend that the Merseyside derby is going to be played behind closed doors. I mean, it, it's... Are we, are we happy it's happening? Well, apart from the fact as a United fan, I'd loved for the season to have been abandoned and Liverpool with nothing. Um, uh, yeah, of course, it, it's, it's got to be better. But we do need, I think, to have a, a real invisible plan to move back to you know enabling the, the fans to, to to engage because it's a bit of a hollow shell without that isn't it mm -hmm. and of course you know we, we sort of somewhat tongue-in-cheek talk about football coming back but it's a huge part of the economic intake isn't it for, for greater manchester city united generates so much in terms of visitors yeah. uh, in yeah. terms of cash coming in if a weekend to to those to, to the city uh, are the football clubs engaged in terms of the discussions you have in Eamon, or are they so big as entities that they just sort of crack on and do their own thing? No, they are engaged. Uh, they're, they're heavily engaged, both um, uh, at, at sort of institutional level, and, and as you've seen this week on a personal level, I mean, wow. the initiative taken by Paul Rashford, uh, yeah. by Marcus, Marcus Rashford. God, <laughs> I did the same as Matt Hancock. He's got his name wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Marcus. Um, but, you know, that, that's that's been outstanding. But, but the clubs have been very, very much engaged um, in, uh, in work and we're working with them to make sure that their, um, their charitable trusts uh, are working with schools who are looking to put in place camps during the summer to try and re-engage kids in advance of September to make sure they haven't been disconnected from school for six months, which is what will happen for a lot of them if they don't go back to September. So there is, there is a, 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 a lot happening. I mean, clearly, you know, they're feeling the financial pain as well. Um, as you know, as, as you know, their sponsors, and not a good time for Etihad in the aviation sector, as you as you're well aware. But I heard a statistic the other day saying we're probably going to lose as many jobs in aviation as a result of this as we lost in the entire mining industry. Um, which is, you know, if if that's the case, and it just shows you the scale of it all. Yeah. But yeah. I have to pay pay credit to the, to the clubs and to some of the other sports institutions in Greater Manchester who've uh, who've played their part and continuing to play their part in trying to. Uh, you know, support and inspire and engage, particularly young people. Yeah. Right, Eamon, as I say, just a, a couple of questions that are starting to come in from, from our audience. So, uh, Alan is asking, we've talked about congestion. What are the views on messaging to move to car as opposed to public transport? 
and the urgency for a clear path to reduction in social distancing on public transport uh, and then and then elimination given wearing masks i think that that, that is i think what what alan's suggesting is that whereas we've been arguing for people to get out of the cars we may be saying to them use your vehicles because we've got to keep our public transport clear for the social distancing measures that have been introduced yeah i mean uh, you know one of my other day jobs is running transport for greater manchester um and so sitting here and uh, getting my teams to put out a message basically saying to people oh uh, don't use public transport leave it to those people who absolutely have to use it and, and i've got no choice because you know i've got trams at the moment um, I've got a capacity of 220, I can carry 22 people on them at socially distance, two metres social distance. So we're operating at 10% capacity. It's a bit like the analogy that we used around hospitality. How do I incur 100% of my operating costs on 10% of my revenue? It doesn't seem to make any sense all of a sudden. Um, so I agree entirely with the point that uh, we need to have a route map to get back to uh, giving people confidence that they can use public transport and what we're seeing is is a bit of an uptick as a result of uh, the retail reopening this i think we've seen something like a 35 percent increase on metrolink use in, in the week but that's basically meant it's gone from seven percent to ten percent of what it used to be um, uh, so there is a real need for us to continue the debate about social distancing one thing i am pleased about i have to say is that um, you know we're observing it on a daily basis the level of compliance of people with wearing face coverings on public transport in Greater Manchester has been, you know, three days in, has been really, really good. Uh, um, uh, you know, sort of 70, 85% of people actually being compliant. And that's, I think, you know, a, a good start. Uh, and as we move into a relaxation of social distancing, which is, you know, I think we're all just anticipating will happen sooner rather than later then that will start to move us in, in, in the right direction. But it does bring me back as well to the issues around cycling and walking, because what I can't do is just have a message that says to people, don't use the tram, don't use the train, don't use the bus, jump in your car, um, because that will just result in congestion, it will result in a collapsing air quality, and it will also exclude the 30 odd percent of people in GM who don't have access to it. Yeah. Uh, and there was a, I bet there's similar numbers in, in Liverpool and the other, the other northern cities as well. So, you know, the, the point is well made. We've got to find a way of pushing back into a more sustainable use of public transport. And that needs to happen quickly, unless we're prepared to just carry on pumping public money into loss-making services and perpetuity, which I don't think anyone's really that interested in. Thanks for your question, Alan. Another question here from uh, Anna, Anna Coleman. Uh, what do you think of Andy Burnham's idea uh, of asking government to support Greater Manchester as a pilot for the next phase of joining up social care with NHS services? Well, if, if it's my mayor's idea, then of course it's brilliant and I support it 100%. Uh, no, uh, in seriousness, I mean, we have been saying for a long time that we think we've built a platform in GM that could enable us to, to move on and achieve the stated ambition of parity of esteem between health and social care. Because um, uh, one thing the pandemic has really, really shown is that, you know, without getting overly critical of anybody, the national perspective was entirely on the health service and, and, and the care service. One of my colleagues says, the last thing you want to be is after the word and the title of the government department. So the Department for Health and Social Care. You don't, you don't want to be there. You just, it's just, it's just the wrong place to be. 
Um, so I think an integrated system is is within our grasp. And one thing to say about the impact of the pandemic, I mean, a lot of people are worried, quite rightly so, that we've got a backlog building up out there of people who really should have come forward to seek medical advice and haven't because they were scared, they didn't want to get sent to hospital because you go there and you die and, and all, all of that sort of stuff. But what we're also seeing is our community-based health services in GM working in a very different way. So I've got GP practices now uh, deployed into social care homes. Um, so the care home is not doing what they've always done in the past. As soon as an elderly person coughs, they pick up the phone and ring uh, 999 for an ambulance. So the, the number of people who are being treated more effectively in their homes or close to their homes, rather than being sucked into the acute care system, is is really tangible. It's really, really visible and real. We've aspired to do that for years, and we've managed to do that in, in, in at great speed in extremis. And I think that's just an example of the direction of travel that we want to move in, because an integrated system that we aspire to is much more focused on health, well-being, and prevention of illness rather than the traditional NHS model, and it's not being critical of them, it's just, it's just the reality. It's been focused very much on how you deal with somebody once they've failed, once their health has failed. And so I, I think there's some real potential for us to move really very quickly um, towards, towards that integration, provided we're given the leeway uh, to do that. At the moment, for understandable reasons, the NHS is in command and control mode. Um, you know, they're, they're very, very much directing um, uh, how local systems are working through the pandemic period. But I think even within that, we've managed to move forward. And I think we could move forward much faster if we were given the, the freedom and flexibility to do that. And it's not about spending more money. It is about spending the same money better. Yeah. yeah. I think we would all wish you luck with the conversations that you're embarking upon with, with government team. And we're just coming to the close of the session now, I just wanted to make one final point and, and perhaps um, get, get your view on this. Uh, we saw um, a DJ challenge between Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham uh, last weekend. I was wondering whether you're up for doing similar with Frank Rogers, mate. Um, <laughs> uh, let, me, let me take that away and think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I, I prefer to leave the uh, high publicity, high profile, um, uh, should I use the word advisedly, stunts <laughs> to the politicians, to be honest. I think they raised a fair few bob for charity, so it was... Uh, uh, I mean, United well We Stream, uh, which was set up here by Sasha Lord. On the oh, it's just been brilliant. It was great. It really was great. Uh, I, I remember I had membership card number three for the Hacienda when it first opened. Yeah, really? So it was like going back in time for me, but uh, I must admit some of the techno DJing uh, left me a bit cold. But uh, but no, some of it was great, and it really helped to, to celebrate the city and to, and to give people a, a focal point. And as you say, it raised the thick end of half a million quid for charity. So what's not to like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I look forward to getting you and uh, and, and Frank on the decks. I, I think I'd pay good money for that. So uh, so let's see what we can do. Eamon, it's been a joy as always to speak to you this morning. Thanks very much for taking time out to, to be with us. No worries. Thanks a lot, Frank. Best of, best of luck. Uh, and for